BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey there, it's Ryan Seacrest for Safeway. Head in store and shop for all your favorite personal care essentials to earn four times rewards points. Shop for products from Olay, Always, Gillette, Vicks, and Crest. Plus check out new items like Mr. Clean Magic Eraser Ultra Thick Multi-Surface Cleaner. No more sponges or other cleaning products needed. And Head & Shoulders Bare Soothing Hydration Shampoo, a new kind of anti-dandruff shampoo with only nine ingredients. Offer expires March 26. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com for more details. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Oh, should we start this show? Yeah, I'm down. Just buying a car in Carvana first. Ooh, for real? Yeah, it's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do is answer a few questions. Ooh, that's helpful. And now just customizing my down and monthly payments. Ooh, that's a very fair deal. Yep. Boom. Just bought a car. And you get to take me to the Carvana vending machine in a couple days to pick it up. Ooh. I'm kind of busy. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. The Supreme Court has concluded its absolutely magnificent term with a major blow to the deep state. So now we are in the dog days of summer and we are looking ahead, looking ahead to the midterm elections. This is Verdict with Ted Cruz. This episode of Verdict with Ted Cruz is brought to you by American Hartford Gold. Now, the new inflation numbers are out, and I think we can all agree they are incredibly depressing. The price of gas is way up. The price of housing is up. The U.S. national debt is way, way, way up. And unfortunately, given the way that our current administration prints money and spends money, experts don't see this going away, this inflation going away anytime soon. So how do you protect your money? your savings, your retirement from inflation. Well, when times are turbulent, Americans like you turn to physical gold and silver and American Hartford Gold can show you how to hedge your hard-earned savings against inflation by diversifying a portion of your portfolio into physical gold and silver. And it's really easy to get started. All it takes is a short phone call and they will have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or if you prefer inside your 401k or your IRA. They make it easy. If you call them right now, then they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first order. So don't wait, call them right now. Call 855-768-1883. Or if you prefer texting, you can text the word cactus to 65532. Again, the phone number is 855-768-1883 or text the word cactus to 65532. Welcome back to Verdict with Ted Cruz. I am Michael Knowles. So pleased to be joined by the Senator who is on vacation, but there is no vacation when it comes to verdict. So, uh, Senator, thank you for jumping off the beach for a few moments to uh, to join us on the show. 
well, happy 4th of July. And it's great to celebrate our nation's birth and independence. And and it's great to do that with the family at the beach. But sometimes you got to come back and address major issues that have come up. One of them is we've covered so much of this Supreme Court term, which seems to me the, certainly the greatest Supreme Court term in my lifetime Perhaps in American history with the overruling of Roe, you had the major win for Second Amendment rights, major win for religious liberty, major win for education freedom. And now in West Virginia versus EPA, a major blow for the administrative state. But this case, probably more than any of the others, is pretty complex. I, I don't know all the nuances of it, and I've really tried to dig into it. Uh, the, the case does not overrule what is called Chevron deference, which is uh, a major source of power for the administrative state. But it does beef up the major questions doctrine, which is to protect the power of the people to to make their voices heard against the administrative agencies of the executive. What what does this case do? So cutting to the bottom line, I think this case is is an important victory, A, for democracy, for actually having control of policy, B, in the democratically elected branches of government, and B, for jobs and, and our ability to uh, pay our bills. So what this concerned was under the Obama administration, they rolled out what they called their clean power plan. And it was the EPA. It was a massive power grab to essentially shut down uh, coal-fired power plants across the country and force a transition to natural gas and to wind and solar. And to do so, the EPA itself admitted that its plan, the Obama EPA, would cost billions of dollars in the economy, would destroy tens of thousands of jobs. This was their own estimate and would drive up everyone's cost of energy. So that, that, that was the Obama administration's big present to America. Now, the the plan has been litigated ever since the Obama administration. Under Trump, they rescinded the rule. Under Biden, they rescinded the rescission. In other words, they potentially teed it up again. Just when we've got $5 gasoline and electricity prices going through the roof, the Biden EPA was threatening to put yet more regulatory burdens driving up the cost of energy. And what the Supreme Court did is struck it down. It was a 6-3 decision. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion. And what Chief Justice Roberts relied on is, as you mentioned it there, it's called the Major Questions Doctrine. The Major Questions Doctrine essentially says that, that if there is a regulatory decision that is a big deal, that has big consequences economically, politically, that Congress has to have been very clear in giving the agency the authority to do it that the court is not going to read in some vague, ambiguous language. In, in this case, the Obama EPA was relying on language that had been on the books for decades, had never been applied to have such a massive power grab. And the Supreme Court said, look, if, if you're looking at a regulation that is going to have a massive economic impact, you can do that, but Congress has to be really clear that it wants to give the agency that authority, that, it, that, that we're not going to read in uh, just through vague and ambiguous language. And I think that that's an important decision. One of the things the court relied on quite a bit is the fact that, that Congress had repeatedly debated cap and trade, had debated 
uh, putting a tax on carbon and debated a lot of these policies and had rejected it over and over and over again. And the court said, look, if Congress, when they try to vote on it, can't decide this is a good idea, we're not going to read into ambiguous language the ability for the agency to just circumvent Congress. So th- this is a big win for the conservative who want to deal, d- the conservatives who have for a long time wanted to deal a blow against the administrative state and against the EPA in particular. For goodness sakes, the EPA is the villain in Ghostbusters. They've been in our crosshairs for a very long time. But it doesn't seem to go all the way that many libertarians and conservatives have wanted the court to go, which is to overrule Chevron deference, at which comes out of a Supreme Court decision that gives a lot of authority to the agencies to regulate themselves. Is that right? That's right. And and uh, look, I think it's entirely possible that this court will overrule Chevron deference in, in a subsequent case. Um, the court didn't need to go there in this case because the major questions doctrine resolved the matter and resolved it uh, effectively. And so it was unnecessary to consider Chevron deference and to decide it on that basis. You know, what I would say in, in uh, so a legislative proposal that I've long been a proponent of is something called the RAINS Act. And I'm a co-sponsor of the RAINS Act. The RAINS Act provides that any regulation that imposes an economic cost of $100 million or more requires an up-down vote from Congress before going into effect. And uh, it, the RAINS Act hasn't passed. I have fought hard to try to get it passed, uh, and we haven't gotten it done yet. I tried very hard with the Trump administration for them to make it a priority, and, and, and the Trump White House, that it just wasn't a priority for them. I think it would have been the most significant regulatory reform we could do to to create an environment where jobs are plentiful. This Supreme Court decision is a step in that direction because it is saying the, the way they laid out the major questions doctrine, they said if it has a big economic impact. Now, they didn't quantify what a big ec- economic impact was. And here, the Obama administration's own estimate is that they were destroying tens of thousands of jobs. So they, they were readily admitting that, that they were they were having a big, big economic impact. But this decision, I think, is is positive for limiting executive power absent congressional authorization. And, and I think that's that's important for part of the reason why you see regulations that are really harmful to the uh, to jobs and businesses coming from the executive branch is because bureaucrats are unaccountable. They don't have to face the people. And and there's a power to having elected officials vote on it. Because look, if you're a member of Congress, it's not an easy vote to cast a vote to destroy tens of thousands of jobs. You, you, you tend to have the people whose jobs you're destroying get really ticked off at you and show up at town halls and yell at you. And, and so there's a reason even Democrats Look, some of the crazies don't mind voting that way, but even Democrats get nervous about directly voting to destroy a lot of jobs. That democratic accountability, I think, is good for economic freedom, because if you have people who vote for it, it lets the voters in the next election step up and throw the bums out. Now, you mentioned crazy Democrats, and this brings up a completely unrelated issue only related in the sense that unaccountable people are passing lots of insane regulations right now. But I do have to get your take on it because it has somehow come to dominate a lot of the political conversation over the past few days. Jordan Peterson and Dave Rubin 
yep. were just thrown off of Twitter. They've been suspended. Jordan for making a comment and then Dave for reposting his comment. And the comment was that Ellen Page, the actress, is Ellen Page, the actress. That was essentially the comment. Jordan referred to Ellen Page, who's the girl from Juno, who now identifies as a man and calls herself Elliot. He just called her Ellen and didn't disparage her really in any way, just pointed out that she had gone through this gender transition and uh, used the female pronouns. He was thrown off for that. Dave was then thrown off the internet for that. Have Have we really descended this far where if you call a celebrity, a very well-known woman by the name that she was known by for most of her career that you can now be thrown out of the public square with basically no way to fight back? Uh, Look, it it is true insanity. And the woke rules are changing so fast, you, you need a guide to reference it. So apparently you're not allowed to say the words Ellen Page. Are you allowed to say the words Ellen Page with reference to when Ellen was going by Ellen and starring in movies with the names Ellen Page on them? Are you allowed to say that? Are you allowed to say that Bruce Jenner was on the cover of Wheaties? Or or was that Caitlyn Jenner and we didn't know it, (laughs) even though it had the words Bruce Jenner printed on the cover, on on the outside of the Wheaties box? There's a level of, you know, the term Orwellian gets tossed around a lot, but it it really is big, big tech trying to erase, we're at war with Eurasia. We've always been at war with Eurasia. And anyone who says to the contrary shall be disappeared. Now, look, if Ellen or Elliot or whoever wants to go by whatever name they want to go, fine. Like, go by whatever name you want. That, that That's, but to say no one is allowed to say anything different it's the opposite of liberty. It's totalitarianism. I think Ellen or Elliot or, or whatever name tomorrow, you want to go by moon unit. I, I don't care. Like, like, call yourself whatever you want. That's fine. But nobody has the right to silence others. And to see Twitter just so casually flick Jordan Peterson off Twitter, so casually flick Dave Rubin off Twitter, um, I think is one of the reasons we've talked about it a lot. I very much hope Elon Musk goes through with his purchase. I think it may be the most important development on for free speech in decades. Um, and hopefully, if and when Musk buys Twitter, this sort of garbage will stop because it is idiocy. There's a kind of irony here, too, because before Ellen started identifying as Elliot, she was gay married to, to a woman, to a woman who identifies as a lesbian. This was after... Uh, same-sex marriage became a cultural phenomenon, but sort of before transgenderism became a cultural phenomenon. And it occurred to me that to affirm Ellen, who now goes by Elliot's gender identity, is to deny her lesbian partner's uh, sexual orientation. I'm trying to see if I can keep that straight, which is to say we cannot simultaneously affirm so many contradictory things. And you mentioned it's uh, uh, Oceania being at war with East Asia. Oceania has always been at war with East Asia. The the rules are changing so constantly. I think what is really scary for Americans who, who aren't keeping up and who don't really care what Ellen Page does is that you can be ostracized. You can be censored and removed from the town square because Twitter and Google and Facebook, those are the town square now. For for simply saying the thing that 
every single person believed until about five minutes ago. If, if Twitter now holds that you cannot call a woman who identifies as a man a woman, well, then effectively, aren't they prohibiting any disagreement with transgenderism? The vast majority of Americans who I suspect do not go along with a radical transgender kind of worldview, does that mean that now the people who control the public square, the flow of 90% of information around the internet, Google, Facebook, and Twitter, we're just not allowed to express our opinions? Look, that's exactly what it means, that they want to silence dissent. You know, I will say back in 2016, um, I actually had a person who identified herself to me as Ellen Page uh, confront me in Iowa. So I was at the Iowa State Fair. I was actually right. cooking pork chops at the Iowa State Fair. And, and this, this young woman walked up to me and began questioning me on... I don't remember exactly. It was gay marriage, uh, gay lesbian issues. I had no idea who she was, but I had a conversation with her. It was filmed and put out there. And at the time, she had I later identified herself as actress Ellen Page. I, am I allowed to say that? That's what she told me her name was when she was questioning me. And that's what she said hmm. online. Maybe I was being questioned by Elliot and I didn't know it. Like it, there is a level of this gets pitched and, and it's like through the looking that glass where they say this is all about, I guess the phrase is dead naming. Yeah. I, you know, you don't have a right to control what other people say. You know, if Michael, you want to go by Michelle, knock yourself out, but, but you don't have the right. You know, it's, it's like the old phrase, my freedom to swing my fist ends at the tip of your nose. Yeah. You have all the liberty you want to say what you want, but that doesn't extend to silencing someone else saying something that you don't like. And today's left doesn't believe that. Part of it is their rules on things like, like gender and I don't know how many, 157 genders. I can't keep up with the, the, latest, uh, the, the, the latest fantastical uh, distinctions. Their rules make so little sense. Yep that I think they realize they must silence anyone questioning them because they can't defend them on the merits. And, and that does fundamentally reflect an acknowledgement of weakness on their part. It also does seem to go along with the broad, broader leftist ethos, which is a rejection of the past. Actually, if you read some of the literature around the phenomenon of dead naming, this phrase only cropped up about 10 years ago on the internet to refer to the names that people have gone by their whole lives until they decide to identify as the opposite sex. Uh, the, the, a lot of the literature around that will discuss it as a rejection of the past. It didn't happen. Ellen was never Ellen. Ellen was always Elliot. <laughs> Oceani was always at war with East Asia, as you say. Well, and let me ask a question. Let me ask a question on this, Michael. And this is, this is where you're, you're good at theoretical navel gazing. Um, <sighs> Is the current theory of transgenderism, let's take it, that Ellen was always Elliot. Yep. And if that's the case, that does that imply that there actually is objective truth, that Ellen was in fact Elliot? And isn't that in contradiction with the other left-wing tenet that you can change whatever the hell you are right now? You can become a woman, a man, and a chipmunk all in the course of this podcast. Like, is there objective truth or not? And what I don't know is, do the leftist activists, do they distinguish? Like, do the, are they willing to say, well, 
Ellen may have been a woman in 2016 when she introduced herself as Ellen and said she was a woman, but now she's a man. Or do they maintain that what is today was yesterday too and she didn't change anything? And how do you tell the difference? Is there like a a, a guide? Some people say they changed and some didn't. Like what's the, what is the reasoning behind this? The current view held by the people who promote this kind of ideology is that Ellen is now and always was Elliot. Even when she was in that movie about being pregnant and possibly having an abortion, when she was in Juno, even then she was really a man. But, but what if Elliot believes that she was Ellen then? Like, like is she allowed or he allowed to well, do this, that? This, I think, is the key. I, is that an acceptable this thing? This is the key because, I, you know, on, on Wikipedia, if you look at uh, uh, Ellen Page or Bruce Jenner or any really prominent person who identifies as transgender, the, the way that that person will be described will always be with the pronouns that they are now using, including going back to the, the very moment of birth. Uh, but, but your question is such an important one because you're saying, well, what decides if Ellen wakes up tomorrow and says, oh, I'm Ellen again, I'm, I'm a she again, and people have done that plenty of times, then is she a she again? And I think that's the case. I think what this ultimately comes down to is not that there is objective truth for the, obviously there is objective truth, but I, I don't think the contention of the left and the transgender ideology is that there is objective truth. I think what it comes down to is the primacy of the will. Whatever Ellen says is true, even if what Alan says contradicts what Alan said yesterday. And so politics devolves from a reasoned debate that you, you, you constantly hear conservatives and old school liberals lamenting the loss of reasoned civil dialogue. Well, that, that has to go away if politics really only comes down to my will versus your will and my interest versus your interest. Well, then we can't talk to each other. Then, then we, we really can't even communicate. It's just all a bunch of sounds and pronouns and <laughs> new noises that that don't really have any any coherence to them well unless they're connected to force and you will be fired you will be silenced you will be blocked you will be canceled if you don't comply right. with what i demand and 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 that's the call of the left you know on these names i also I all, it's also seems to me that the names are intentionally provocative you know there are plenty of names that are androgynous and ambiguous i don't know Taylor, Schuyler, Madison, you know, but but when it, when it comes down to this question of uh, someone who is obviously a woman going by, uh, I don't know, Hank or something, that seems a little little crazy as well. And I, I, I think th this issue keeps uh, getting so much play in large part because ordinary people who are not engaging in all this kind of ideological navel gazing, who are not very online or marching with the radical leftists in the streets, who are just kind of conducting their ordinary lives. They're looking at this and they're saying, I know this is obviously wrong. Well, I, I will say, so I'm on a plane an awful lot. And so I download lots and lots of shows, uh, streaming shows. And one of the shows that I've watched on Netflix is something called Umbrella Academy uh, about these, uh, students who have sort of superhero type powers. And for the first two seasons, Umbrella Academy starred Ellen Page. And the third season, which I just finished watching, it now stars Elliot Page. And what's interesting is the character in the, the, the Netflix series has the same transition that Ellen slash Elliot has had. And in fact, the beginning of season three the character is a woman. 
Although the the sh- credits say it's Elliot Page playing a woman, and then the character decides that she is a he. And part of how Hollywood does this is every single person immediately just, this is reality. And 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 it, it was an interesting example because when I started watching season three, I was kind of curious how they were going to handle this issue. And so they made the character completely mirror uh, what what the actor was go- going through as well, which I which I just thought was an interesting wrinkle. Uh, it's a, t- a total failure of imagination, it seems. <laughs> also, it's, it seems that now it used to be that acting was when you pretended to be someone that you were not. Now we're told that unless you're gay, you can't play a gay character. Unless you're this specific sub race of a group of people, you can't play a person of that group. Unless you know what. Whatever happened to playing pretend? Whatever happened to the imagination? Uh, that that seems to be out the window right now. Michael, that's exactly right. The the concept of acting has has just gone away. I mean, now uh, in order to play Michael Knowles, one must be a Catholic conservative Italian Sicilian, and nobody other than Michael Knowles can play not Michael Knowles. That's right. And the whole concept of acting has gone, you know, there's a, there's a famous story of when um, Sir Lawrence Olivier was doing a movie along with Dustin Hoffman. And, you know, Hoffman is famously a method actor. And, and in the scene, he was required to be very, very tired. So he stayed up all night and he was exhausted. And for some reason, there was a problem shooting and they weren't able to film the scene. And Hoffman got upset. And, uh, and, 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 you know, was like, look, I stayed up all night. I was like getting ready. Now we're not going to shoot the scene. And Sir Lawrence Olivier, uh, famously quipped to him. He, he said, my dear boy, why don't you try acting? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and, and then the, the sort of meta story on top of that, uh, did you ever see the movie hook? Yeah. Oh, years ago, but yes. You know, it's a great movie with Robin Williams and and Dustin Hoffman. And Robin Williams plays a grown-up Peter Pan. And Dustin Hoffman plays Captain Hook. And apparently while they were filming uh, Hook, Robin Williams would make fun of of Hoffman. And he would, you know, he'd make the voice of a parrot. And he'd go, caw, try acting. Caw, try acting. (laughs) And apparently there is no acting anymore. No, no, acting is over. I, I do want to clarify for people, too. If you do want to play me, not just any Italian will do. Not I don't want any northern Italian. It's got to be from the town in Sicily where my family comes from. That's how particular we're we're going to get. Now that you know, they say that politics is show business for ugly people. And uh, speaking of particularity, I want to get nitty. Well, thank you, Michael. <laughs> I, I I take that personally. So thank you very much. <laughs> That's, with with notable exceptions, of course, of course, obviously <laughs> for the people on this podcast. Uh, but you know. Uh, when we're looking ahead to the midterms, we got a whole lot of seats. We got all of those hundreds of congressional seats. We've got a whole bunch of Senate seats up to say nothing about the state houses. So since you're you're much more focused on the ground, on the nitty gritty, know the players very closely, what should conservatives be looking at? Where should we be looking? What races should we be focused on? And how by what margin are we going to win? So I'm very optimistic for November. I think it is going to be an historic victory. Um, I think the chances of our taking the House are are approaching 100 percent. I think it is virtually a certainty that we'll take the House. I think the real question is how big of a margin. And I think the chances are good that we'll take the Senate. I'd probably handicap the Senate 
at 6535. Uh, on the House side, some of the reason why I'm so optimistic, let me give you just some of the uh, specific data because the two best predictors for elections historically have been the generic congressional ballot, which is just asking people in the upcoming congressional election, do you intend to vote Republican or Democrat? So without a name of a candidate, that is measured every year. That's a very good predictor for what's going to happen in November. And then the presidential approval or disapproval. And, and consistently, those two together have been very good predictors. So if you look at, um, you look at for example, 2010, which was an historic year, uh, in that election, the generic ballot was Republican plus 9.4. So it was really strong generic ballot. Presidential approval was actually not too bad. It was minus 0.5. So it was just the, the disapproval was just slightly above uh, approval. And we ended up picking up 63 seats, getting to a majority of 242 seats. Uh, likewise, 2014, the generic was R plus 2.4. Presidential approval was minus 10.4. And we got to 247 seats. Now, if you look at where we are today in 2022, the generic congressional is R plus 3.3. So that means by 3.3%, people say they're going to vote Republican instead of Democrat. That's better than it was in 2014 although not as good as it was in 2010, but the presidential approval is minus 11.5, which is by far the worst, much, much worse than 2010, much, much worse than 2014. Let me give you another stat that, that, that is a very interesting predictor, which is the enthusiasm gap. If you ask voters, are you very excited to vote in November? It's a really good predictor of what's going to happen. And if you go back and look at it in 2006, Democrats who were very interested in voting in November, 69%, Republicans, 56%. So the Democrats had a 13 percentage advantage on enthusiasm. They picked up 30 seats. 2010, Democrats who were very interested was 49%, Republicans was, was 66%. So Republicans had a 17% advantage. We picked up 63. 2014, the differential was 11%. We picked up 13 seats. 2018, uh, the differential Democrats who were interested was 66%, Republicans 57. So Democrats had a nine-point advantage in enthusiasm. They picked up 40 seats. And then if you go and look to March of 2022, Democrats, 50% are very interested in voting in November. Republicans, 67%. So we've got a 17% advantage. All of that is suggesting that we could see a Republican victory in the House with potentially a pickup anywhere from 30 to 60 seats. I, th I think that's the spread that's in play, um, which is a whole lot of seats. What we're seeing is congressional seats that are, say, a D plus six or a D plus eight are right now polling tie. Um, if you look at Virginia, uh, Virginia last year, as you know, elected Glenn Youngkin. Biden won Virginia by 10 points. So Virginia was a D plus 10. And on election day last year, it went Republican. If we're winning D plus 10 congressional seats, 
we're looking at 60-plus pickups in the house. So I, I think it's going to be a big, big deal. Um, and I think the, house, the Senate is too. So uh, there are far too many congressional House seats to track. In terms of the Senate races, you've got some big celebrity candidates. J.D. Vance has made a huge splash in Ohio. Dr. Oz is already a celebrity and has been for a long time in Pennsylvania. What are the races that we should really be looking at, uh, whether because they're bellwethers, you know, they're going to they're gonna tell us which way the, the winds are blowing, or just because they're so crucial for Republicans to pick? Sure. So the reason the Senate is far less certain than the House is that we don't have a great map this year. So Republicans are defending more vulnerable seats than Democrats are. And that just is luck of the draw of who happens to be up, because in the Senate, only a third of the senators are up every two years. Um, if you look at Republican pickup opportunities, the four most natural are Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, and New Hampshire. Georgia and Arizona have historically been red states. Uh, just a couple of years ago, they had both had two reds, two Republican senators. Now, both Georgia and Arizona have two Democrat senators. Um, in Georgia, you've got Herschel Walker running. Um, I think I, I think Walker's got a good shot at winning that race. I think Georgia is still fundamentally a red state. Uh, the special elections or the runoff elections that that, that happened in in 2021, Republican turnout was depressed. It was right after the election. I, I was on the ground. I saw it that that, that our base was demoralized and didn't show up in that special election. And if, if your guys stay home and the other guys show up, that, that's a recipe for losing. So I think Georgia is a real pickup opportunity. Uh, Arizona is a real pickup opportunity. That's got a messy primary right now. There's several candidates slugging it out in that primary. So it's not clear who the Republican nominee is going to be. Um, Mark Kelly is the incumbent Democrat and he is, uh, he's formidable. He's an astronaut. Um, his temperament seems moderate. I do think Kelly has been really, really hurt by Kirsten Cinema, the other Democrat senator from Arizona, because Cinema on a number of issues, most notably the filibuster, has stood up to party leadership and has has tacked a more moderate course. And it's made Kelly, it's revealed him, his voting record is in many ways indistinguishable from Bernie Sanders. And I think that even though he cultivates a persona of being a moderate, his voting record now does not match up with that. I think Arizona, we got a good pickup opportunity. Nevada, Adam Laxalt uh, won the primary. I endorsed Adam. I campaigned with him. I think Adam is a great pickup opportunity. If I were, in fact, I think Nevada, Adam is the most likely Republican pickup uh, this cycle because uh, I think he's done a good job of unifying the party. I think he's running a good campaign. I think we're going to win in Nevada. Uh, New Hampshire, um, Maggie Hassan is on the ballot. Her She's underwater. Her disapproval is greater than her approval. I think she's vulnerable. It's not clear who the Republican is going to be and if we're going to have a strong candidate. I hope we do. If we have a strong candidate, I think New Hampshire is winnable, but we've got to get someone uh, who is able to raise the money and be competitive. If the governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, had run, I think he would have won easily. He decided not to run. And so New Hampshire is a state where we just got to wait and see if we're going to have a candidate that can be competitive. Those are the four best pickup opportunities. 
There are other pickup opportunities that are more of a long shot. Uh, Colorado, Michael Bennett, I think, is vulnerable. He doesn't have great name ID. He hasn't accomplished much of anything in the Senate. Colorado is a bluish state that in a really good year could conceivably go red. So I think Colorado is a possible pickup. Washington State, right now the polling in Washington State uh, is showing the Republican within just a couple of points of, of Patty Murray, the incumbent Democrat. Um, I'll give you a long shot, Vermont. So Pat Leahy is retiring. Pat Leahy is actually the only Democrat in the history of Vermont elected to the Senate, which is really quite remarkable. The other senator is Bernie Sanders, who's not a Democrat. He's a socialist. Mm, right, uh, right. He's not, not a member of the Democrat Party. Um, you know, there's a former U.S. attorney running in Vermont, uh, a woman who I, I think is in a really good year, has a, a, a shot at that race. So there are, depending on how good a year there is, there are four natural pickup opportunities and then I think several more. Now, where are we on defense? We're on defense, number one, in Pennsylvania. Uh, as you noted, so Pat Toomey is the incumbent. He's a Republican. He's retiring. Uh, Dr. Oz is the Republican nominee. I, I think Dr. Oz can win. Uh, he just went through a tough primary uh, bet between him and Dave McCormick, who's another very strong candidate. Uh, but I'm optimistic that, that, that Oz's numbers are not terrific right now, but he just came out of the primary. I'm optimistic that's a winnable seat, but we need to hold Pennsylvania. Um, Wisconsin, Ron Johnson is the incumbent Republican. He probably uh, is faces the greatest threat for any incumbent Republican. Wisconsin's a historically purple state. Uh, I think Ron will win this year. Um, I was just out in Milwaukee and, and supporting him and campaigning for him. I think he'll win this year. Uh, but History, history teaches that race is likely to be close. Um, you mentioned Ohio. Rob Portman, a Republican, is retiring. J.D. Vance is the nominee. I, th I think J.D. will win that race, but Ohio has certainly historically been a swing seat. Uh, Missouri, you've got Roy Blunt, who's retiring. Uh, there, you've got a crowdy and messy primary. The candidate I've supported, Eric Schmidt, who's the attorney general, um, I think is the strongest conservative uh, that can win. But whether that race is competitive will depend on what happens in the primary. Um, one of the candidates in the primary, Eric Greitens, the former governor, resigned in scandal. I think if Greitens wins the primary, you'll see Democrats invest a lot of money in Missouri. I think they'll think that that's a seat they can steal if Greitens wins the nomination. Um, you know, another state that could get bumpy is Alaska. So Alaska, you've got Lisa Murkowski, who's the incumbent. She's the Republican. Donald Trump has endorsed against her. He's campaigning against her. Um, Alaska also has a weird system of voting, of ranked choice voting, right. where you vote for multiple candidates and then you eliminate the lowest vote uh, getter and reallocate those votes. So I don't know what will happen there. But anytime you have Republicans divided, in this case, you got Trump on one side and the incumbent Republican on the other, it's messy. And, you know, when I got to the Senate 10, 10 years ago, Alaska had a Democrat, Mark Begich, in it. I mean, Alaska is in a Senate race. It's more purple than you might think. So I, I think we will probably hold on to Alaska, but it's not impossible that we lose that state. So put all of that together, put it in the blender. 
my guess right now, if the election were today, we'd win something like 53 seats altogether. Hmm. But I think the plus minus is anywhere from 49, if things just go spectacularly bad, to 56, if they go phenomenally and we win some seats like like a Vermont or a Washington state, if it's that good a year, we could get up in the 55, 56 range. So then you're, if you're looking at retaking the House, and especially if you're also looking at retaking the Senate, then you're setting the stage for two years of stopping Biden, slowing down Biden. Yep. It's hard to slow down Biden. Biden's pretty slow as it is right now. Uh, but you, you, <laughs> you, you stop the administration and then you look ahead to 2024. Is there is there anything that you're seeing right now that uh, you you think in 2022 will help to determine the shape of the 2024 field? Oh, sure. Um, number one, I think it's important that that we win in 22. But then when we have majorities, we got to do something with it. Hmm. And and you know, that's just the beginning of the battle to win the majorities. And, and, and if we get to January 2023 with majorities in both houses, if Republican leadership decides to play a prevent defense and do nothing and be risk averse, which is often leadership's instinct, I think that will demoralize a lot of voters. If you elect a bunch of squishes, you can't just go blaming leadership when they push squishy policies. <laughs> the, the leadership yeah. in, is one, trying to herd cats, but but two, they are taking cues from their members. You know, they're the they're sure. trying to operate uh, le levers of power within the confines of reality. So I, I love this idea. You got to go out there. You got to go elect the most right viable candidates, and then you're going to have a much better shot of encouraging leadership to actually stand up and fight. Now there is much more to talk about, Senator. Before you return to your lovely family vacation that we have rudely interrupted, there's a lot more to talk about <laughs> on the cloakroom with our friend Liz Wheeler. Hi, Senator. Hi. Is it Michelle? I've been waiting in the wings and I just overheard that that perhaps you're identifying as Michelle. Now, OK, well, I just want to. Or so I was told. I, I just want to be the uh, one to note that this is breaking national news. We have a great topic that we're going to talk about on the cloakroom today. We are going to talk about um, a very highly reported piece of the Dobbs decision. This is, of course, Justice Clarence Thomas, who said in future cases, we should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell. So we're going to talk about these cases and whether they should be overturned and if they were to be overturned, how that would be done. You can join us on The Cloakroom. It's on Verdict Plus. Go to verdict with tedcruz.com slash plus. If you use my promo code, which is, of course, Cloakroom, you can get your first month free on your annual subscription. It is verdict with tedcruz.com slash plus. I cannot wait. You were looking at the Clarence Thomas Nashville <laughs> fan club over here, president and chairman. Can't wait to hear that discussion of why we need to get rid of substantive due process. All right. That's enough for me. I'm out of here. I'm Michael Knowles. This is Verdict with Ted Cruz. This episode of Verdict with Ted Cruz is being brought to you by Jobs, Freedom, and Security PAC, a political action committee dedicated to supporting conservative causes, organizations, and candidates across the country. In 2022, Jobs, Freedom, and Security PAC plans to donate to conservative candidates running for Congress and help the Republican Party across the nation. Hey there, it's Ryan Seacrest for Safeway. Now that spring is here, it's time to focus on self-care and revitalize your personal care routine. 
Now through March 26, head in store, shop for all your favorite personal care essentials, and earn four times rewards points. Shop for items like Crest toothpaste, secret deodorant, Old Spice deodorant, or Gillette razors. Offer expires March 26. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com for more details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We all know about the atrocities that were committed by Hamas last October the 7th, which kicked off a vicious war as Israel is defending itself from terrorists on every side. The toll on the Israeli people is staggering and massive. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis have been forced from their homes. Well, the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, IFCJ, is right there in the middle of all of it every single day. They're distributing critical essentials like food, medicine, and emergency supplies for hundreds of thousands of suffering Jews. They need your help. And that's why I'm partnering with IFCJ right now. Visit supportifcj.org to help. Every donation is urgently needed to help the people of Israel. To give to the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, please go now to supportifcj.org and give as generously as you can. Now, the most important part is your gift will be matched to double its impact and help provide twice the support. Again, visit supportifcj.org, supportifcj.org right now. Thank you, and God bless you. Hi, I'm Ben Ferguson. Inflation is eating away at your purchasing power, risking your savings and future legacy. Now, with more taxes and an unsustainable national debt and the push for central bank digital currencies, financial freedom is at stake. If you have 50000 or more in retirement savings, you may be at risk. Freedom Gold USA is here to help you preserve and protect your wealth with physical gold and silver. Act now. Call them 1-800-655-8843 or visit freedomgoldusa.com slash Ben to see if you qualify for up to $10,000 in free silver. That's 1-800-655-8843 or freedomgoldusa.com slash Ben.